You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Odaisu, long time no see. Imprisoned for 15 years. Losing your wife and child. Seeking revenge is the greatest cure for someone who got hurt. What happens after you've revenged yourself? What will you do? I can't end it like that. Standards of living. They're rising daily Takes me further from heaven Is there a heaven? I'd like to think so Do you seek revenge or do you find the truth? Seeking revenge has become a part of me. Who are you? Come on, it's a game. I will kill every girl that you love until the day that you die. <laughs> Farewell, Odysseus. Laugh, and the world laughs with you. Weep. And you weep alone. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Bill Ackerman. Hey, thanks for having me back. Also joining us is Mr. John Adam. Hey, how are you doing? On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at Park Chan-wook's Old Boy, based very loosely on the manga by Garan Tushiya and Nobuaki Minegishi. I don't know why I put people's names in these when I 
am going to screw him up. The film tells the tale of Odesu, a salaryman who gets abducted and held in a cell for 15 years. Just as he's abducted without explanation, he's freed just the same way. From there, the film becomes a mystery where Odesu tries to find not just who abducted him, but why. Now, we're going to be spoiling this film, so if you haven't seen Old Boy, the two remakes, or Brian De Palma's Obsession, turn off the podcast, come back after you, feel comfortable with yourself, with your place in the world. Bill, when was the first time you saw Old Boy, and what did you think? The first time I saw Old Boy would have been, I guess, late summer, early fall of 2005. Um, I would have rented the Tartan Asian Extreme DVD when it was a new release. I had been looking forward to it. I had read about it being a big success at the Cannes Film Festival the year before. I knew Quentin Tarantino had been a big uh, fan of it. And I think I went into it expecting it to be, um, I know it's Korean, but I was expecting it to be akin to the Japanese uh, auteur action thrillers, like the Yakuza type movies, like Takeshi Katana or Takashi Miike. I think I was expecting it to be something like Sonatine. I went into it with those expectations and it really kind of exceeded anything. I mean, I knew it was going to be probably pretty good because it's arriving on like a wave of hype and it lived up to the hype as a good movie. But the first time I saw it, I was just taken aback by like just how exuberantly told it was and the the set pieces. I mean, the things that, you know, make it famous. But yeah, going back to it uh, on rewatch it, you know, it's a film that I think like the moodiness and the ambiguity of it, I think is maybe what makes it like a great film for me. I mean, as much as I like, you know, the action too, I think it's, there's something mysterious about it that I think makes it really interesting. I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. And how about you, John? I don't remember the exact year, but I think it was around the same time, uh, 2005, 2006. I was still in high school. And uh, just uh, quite simply, it blew my very malleable uh, young mind at the time. I was not, I was not a cinephile at the, uh, back then. And I didn't, you know, I didn't, I had absolutely no expectation. I had no idea what even the Cannes Film Festival was. And, and I was so naive about the movie that, you know, just by the fact that it was an, an Asian movie, I thought, oh, cool. I'm, I'm, uh, this is probably going to be some uh, awesome martial arts flick. And it just, it was anything of that. And I was impressed for, by, by it for the same reason. Obviously the twist, which we're going to get to, uh, Spoiler alert was enough to blow my mind, but then as as I kept rewatching it, the the sort of the the direction, the acting, the the sort of the noir like cinematography that Park Chan uses uh, made made me appreciate it even more. It's the only film that I revisit every year, multiple times a year. I think I've seen it three or four times every year since since that time, and it's it's one of my favorite movies, and it's the one that made me a cinephile. So uh, I think that says a lot. Kind of like you guys, I think I saw this right around the same time. I had just heard about the hammer fight. That was pretty much it. I just heard, hey, there's a really cool fight with the hammer in this movie. And that was enough for me to watch it. And the first time I watched it, yeah, the twists really took me by surprise. And I have to say that nothing feels like it's unearned. The movie feels like it is just put together so well. And just like everybody, I enjoyed this much more on a surface level the first time I saw it. And then as I've rewatched it over the years, I can just start to pull out more and more. And it's just such a rewarding watch. It is just uh, remarkable as to the craft that was used to put this together. And then this excuse of doing this episode for me allowed me to then dive into other things that I hadn't, that I'd always wanted to, like being able to actually go back and read the manga. I had never actually read that. 
I was a little surprised by the manga, I, I have to say, because once I got to the end of the eighth book, I thought for sure there had to be a ninth book because the motherfucker, it ends on a cliffhanger. What the fuck? I was a little upset by that. And it's so much was added to the story. Like the bare bones are there as far as a guy being taken and put into a place. I think he's put in there for what, 10 years in that version. And then when he comes out, it reminds me of the Flitcraft story that we talked about on the Maltese Falcon episode, where this guy avoids being hit by a beam and then he decides he's going to change his life. And he does all of this, these things, moves away, finds a new wife, and then eventually he falls back into his old patterns. It's kind of like that because the being put into jail for 10 years for the character's name is Goto in that after a while, once we're to the eighth book, he's back being a salary man. And now he's got another wife and it's just like, okay, nothing has changed. But like I said, it ends on a cliffhanger. Yeah. I read the manga almost as soon as I found out that the movie, this movie was based on a manga and I had an initial reaction similar to yours. I, I hated the manga. I thought the ending was stupid. I, I wasn't quite satisfied with the reason why the villain is, uh, the reason the villain is given for hating, uh, Goto, the main character. But, uh, upon, I reread it for, for the first time since a long time ago for this, in preparation for this episode. And I, I don't know why I, I'm just, I was able to appreciate it a lot more. It, it, you're right. The ending is a lot more ambiguous and, uh, leaves a lot more room for interpretation compared to all the movie, the movie versions, uh, uh, for, for this, uh, subject matter but i don't know why it just it just appealed to me more maybe just because i'm older and i can appreciate ambiguity more i don't know but that was that was uh my opinion on it i had never read it before this past week and uh i really liked it a lot. i liked it more than the um the other film versions that we'll be talking about the uh that the remakes once you get past the first book it really starts yeah you, you mentioned maltese falcon and, and I, I did think of of film noir and i think partly partly because it you know the the uh, the images are all black and white, so it obviously has a little bit of that too. But it's also like a um, like they hang out a lot, and they and he goes places. Like I mean, he goes to dive bars, he goes to gyms with prize fighters training, he goes to racetracks, construction sites. Like it feels like more akin to those noirs with like a defeated, troubled protagonist, like a kiss me deadly kind of kind of thing. And uh, kind of almost wish that somebody had filmed that version if they're gonna keep retelling the story i mean it's an interesting variation i mean it it surprised me like not only does it not have um well spoiler alert the incest angle but it also um it's still quite weird and it's like heavy use of hypnosis and it's maybe a little bit less pc than the rest of the films as far as like how gay men and lesbian characters are portrayed in the <laughs> in this story i mean it's definitely you have to forgive a few things if you're not gonna yeah that predatory lesbian that is going after the school teacher is just like okay yeah this is a little much and just that whole like will she have to sleep with this woman to get the information or won't she and then it's like oh haha i'm just kidding that was really bizarre and yeah you're right the hypnosis the hypnosis is there but it is used strangely and then there's this idea that there's a deeper secret that's locked inside of the females that we never get so that's like yet another one of those cliffhangers where it's just like wait a second we never got that resolved there were so many things that were just left towards the end and then it, it reminded me of fucking sherlock the bbc version where they had this great villain 
Moriarty, and then they kill him off, and then they don't know what the hell to do after that, and so then they bring back Moriarty somehow. So, like, at the very end of the manga, when they get a message and it's from the villain, it's like, ooh, is he really dead or is he not? Well, we saw him shoot himself in the head, so he's probably dead, but who knows? Are they going to try to prolong this for three more seasons? Wasn't that a dream, though? The scene at the end with the message, the epilogue, I think it was... Uh, You're I, right, because that's when she throws herself off the building, but yet she's actually still there. So I think it's more of a uh, psychological. So the villain managed to sort of uh, uh, irreversibly insert himself into the uh, psyche of the protagonist. Although there was, I mean, for for the time, there were also some elements of the manga that I thought were, you know, acceptable or, or PC enough, even by today's standards. Like one theme that kept coming up, especially in the early chapters, when they were speculating why, what, what was the reason for the antagonist's hatred, and one one hypothesis they kept they kept coming up was maybe he's a homosexual obsessed with you. And I don't think I didn't feel like the manga made fun of that or was derisive in any way. I thought he was, you know, just as a valid of of a hypothesis as any other. And you know, interestingly enough, they never answer that because I don't think we ever see the antagonist in a in a heterosexual relationship. So that's still you know an an open question. Yeah, that actually is an aspect that the Spike Lee version reminded me of, as far as like the way that the uh, the, the the villain is coded as potentially gay. Yeah, you talk about the epilogue, and I thought that was an interesting way to end it. That one password, you know, could unlock this horrible fate for his wife, and you don't know, and like that tension. I thought, I mean, because I I knew you, you had warned me that it ended on a cliffhanger, and I thought, but I I, I wasn't unsatisfied with that, you know, open ending. Good, I'm glad for that. And yet, you mentioned, John, the idea of like, hey, wouldn't it be great if we adapted the manga for the big screen? And there is no interview on this episode, but I did talk with Mark Protasevich uh, for the I Am Legend and um, a Mega Man episode, and we talked quite a bit about old boy. So I'm not going to just recycle an interview that I did before. So I would recommend people go check that out because Mark even said like, oh yeah, I wanted to adapt the manga. I gave Steven Spielberg the eight book you know, set and I, we wanted to do that. And what we ended up getting with the Spike Lee version, which is based on a script by Mark Protasevich, is not that. It's basically the retread of of old boy from 2003 there's some differences and we'll definitely talk about those differences but i was really expecting when i finally picked up mark's script which unfortunately i think was way too many drafts down the line that i was just like okay yeah this is pretty much what we got so this idea too again i'm kind of jumping ahead this idea of there being a three-hour version of spike lee's old boy i kind of don't buy it because the script that i read was 114 pages and it's pretty much what we saw on the big screen, minus a couple little things here and there. I agree. Yeah, I, I find it, you know, I mean, that's that isn't that a common excuse among filmmakers? Well, if you only saw my version of it, you, the movie wouldn't suck so much. And I just I, I it's again, uh, who knows? I mean, you'd have to actually see the version to really say whether it's good or no. But I've, I find it very hard to believe that its flaws would improve by these added 30 minutes that we're supposedly missing from from the final cut. I think it's even more than 30 minutes, because he was saying three hours. Three hours? What are you talking about, three hours? What would have been there? I mean, if you adapted the manga, I mean, the you know, the manga is eight chapters long. I mean, that could almost be stretched into a, uh, into a single season TV series. So if, if they did that, then sure, yeah. Yeah, but they would have had to have been, like, complete characters that weren't 
available that we weren't seeing. Like, yeah, reintroduce the school teacher character, have, uh, Adrian's life in Australia, Austria or, or England or wherever he went to, you know, after he left school. But sorry. So I, like I said, I'm getting way too far ahead. Um, and we should talk specifically about the 2003 version for a while. And again, just, you know, this movie is so, smart and the more i read about it the smarter i realized that it was i am completely unfamiliar with korean history the idea of uh the imf bailout that had happened the way that they went from a dictatorship to a democracy just all of these things seem to be playing in the background of old boy and what i like so much is that they're not literally playing on the background, but they're playing on a split screen as we see the events of the world unfold as Odesu is inside of his cell, which looks like a cheap motel room. And just we kind of get the passage of time through television and then also showing the major things that he's missing that he doesn't really ever seem to care about. I was going to ask you this, Damon. Do you think that the use of the current events... Uh, lends itself to like reading Old Boy as a more political film than, I mean, I, I I've always took it as signpost for a Korean audience to know where we were in history, kind of the way that the American remake does and and the Bollywood too. Um, but do you think that he's saying something about like economics or something about the country's history in in this story? I don't know about historical necessarily, of course, although that scene does seem to make that connection. I do think there's certainly a practical reason for that, you know, montage is just, you know, it show, it's a, it's a cool way to show the passage of time, but there's definitely later on, there's definitely class issues that are being addressed by the film that may have a historical tie to Korean society. Their villain character is the most pure vision of capitalism that I've ever seen. Like we don't necessarily know how he's made his money. We just know that he has become so incredibly rich. And when we see Odesu at the beginning, he is, you know, wearing the typical garb of the salary man. And, you know, we, he is fighting against that life, not enjoying that life whatsoever. At least that's my impression as he's overweight, he's drunk, his family life isn't that great. And then after he gets out of prison, and even when he's in prison, I mean, he's basically working for the capitalist the entire time and just like a puppet on a string for the capitalist the entire movie. Like he's even like working, trying to solve this mystery. And then once he solves it, our capitalist character is just like, you know, you kind of solved the wrong mystery. You were looking for who I am, but you really should have been looking for why I let you go. Yeah, absolutely. And if we go a step further and tie this to the, uh, you know, uh, Greek drama and tragedy uh, connections of this film, in, in, in a lot of Greek tragedies, fate is ordained by the gods. Whereas in this movie, the god is is literally because uh, Wu Jing controls pretty much every aspect of uh, Odasu's life, much like a god. And the only reason he can do that is because he is, like you said, the perfect capital is the one who has uh, seemingly infinite power because of his wealth and status in society. Infinite power and infinite resources. And he uses those resources always for the wrong thing. <laughs> the uh, How he even saves Odesu uh, from the guy who Odesu's uh, taken the, the teeth from, where it's just like, oh yeah, no, don't do anything to him. And I know you want revenge, but 
this is my revenge that I'm getting, and here's a bag of money. So he is able to buy that guy off. And then he's even able to buy that guy's hand because he gives him a building. And it's just like, you know, this this message that we're being sent as far as like, you know, this capitalist can do whatever he wants. Wu Jin can do whatever he wants because he has infinite resources, even so much that he is able to give this guy a building in exchange for the man's hand. I lost my hand! So the thing that I noticed reading the manga and then watching the film again was the theme of revenge is foregrounded. And obviously it's, you know, surrounded by two other Vengeance trilogy films, you know, from the director. Do you think that the film is being critical of revenge films, even revenge film audiences? Um, Because I'm watching it again this time and the hero and the villain are both obsessed with revenge and they're neither going to walk away happy unless, you know, hypnotism is involved to make it so. It's critiquing that. And like even the most famous set piece, the battle scene, it's like, is it celebratory? Is it world weary? Is it going through the motions? We can talk about that scene when we get to it. But like, I don't know if philosophically it's like a celebration of the revenge film or um, critiquing it a little bit. Because I think anytime that you get a movie that's a critique of revenge fantasies, the best ones or the most popular ones still offer the pleasures of seeing the bad guys get their comeuppance, whether it be Last House on the Left or Taxi Driver or, you know, History of Violence. Um, you know, whether or not they have, like, the ironic ending that comments on the notion of revenge, it's still like, you know, people still like seeing the villains dispatched. Then, you know, Old Boy, I know, was coming off of a flop because Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, I guess, had been a failure, you know, in Korea. I think Old Boy is definitely designed to be a hit. And it was described as exploring the positive side uh, that brings people catharsis, you know, to talk about revenge. Like, it's an upbeat take on it. But do you think that it's... I mean, wh- when you watch it, do you think that it's judging the character and judging revenge? Park Chang-woo has stated so explicitly in interviews. I think the old boy is certainly the most ambiguous of the two in the trilogy, but if you watch the first one and the third one, Mr. Vengeance and Lady Vengeance, I, th- I think those movies are a lot more explicitly critical of revenge. Even in the third one, which is uh, the most commercial of the three, kind of like the Thunderdome of the series, in a way. Uh, 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 it's where it's, I mean, that's, there's hardly any moral ambiguity in that. The bad guy, there's a clear bad guy and the bad guy gets his comeuppance at the end. Even after that, that the 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 final scene of the movie ends with the character not sure whether or not she found satisfaction uh, in her revenge. So I think it's at least from a, a tour perspective, Park Chang Wood is definitely critical. I don't know if that comes up perfectly in Old Boy. It seemed very critical of revenge for me. The idea of Wu Jin having the heart put in, the fake heart or the artificial heart, so that he is able to control when his own death is and that he is only surviving as long as he is enacting vengeance upon Odesu, it, it's kind of twisted, you know, and, and I think that we are very much aware that this is a twisted thing, that he is only living for his revenge and that Odesu is only living for his revenge and that, that Wu Jin puts him on that path, that Odesu would have been completely oblivious to any former wrongs that he might have done. He may have always stayed a 
what, what's that line from Animal House? Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. But that's pretty much what he was doing. And he would have continued on that path probably forever until Wu Jin took him, made him into a new man, and put him on this path. We get to see how fruitless his vengeance is because it kind of blows up in his face. And that uh, Wu Jin, after his vengeance is enacted, he has nothing to live for and takes his own life. He doesn't even give uh, Odesu the pleasure of killing him. He kills himself. The vengeance is also uh, one indication of uh, the class differences between the two. The every man that is Odesu and the absolute capital is that is Wu Jin. If you if you look at how I mean, they both uh, for for most of the movie's runtime, they're both engaged in this revenge plot. And the way Dasu seeks revenge is through blood and violence. He has to literally fight his way through heaps of people to get to Wu Jin, whereas Wu Jin is just kind of does it more cleanly through his uh, from his high tower and is able to use his capital and money to orchestrate his perfect revenge plot. Those two themes are connected there. Yeah, sometimes I think there's a little bit more to Mido, the female character, her talking about how lonely people see ants, because I think Wu Jin from his tower, everyone looks like an ant to him. And then having come off of just watching Can Dialectics Break Bricks a few times, of course, I'm like in a really communist mood. So you're talking about how Odesu is fighting through all these people. And of course, I'm like, well, he's fighting with a hammer. I mean, can you get much more of the worker struggle than fighting with a hammer? <laughs> yeah. The perfect tool of the proletariat. Hammer time! Memory plays such a role in this film. The whole idea that Odesu has done this thing and has really no memory of it. And for him, it was just such a whatever. Like, he doesn't think about it. It doesn't ever trouble him at night. He never thinks about what he has done in the past. And this idea of how important memories are and how important it is to remember the past or have your past wiped out as he does at the end. And I did not realize that that might also be coming from some Korean politics as far as when the new party was coming into power in the mid nineties that it was like, okay, well, we're going to kind of rewrite the past to make things a little bit nicer. And so there was a lot of controversy as far as like, you know, history books and things like that, where it was just like, oh yeah, no. And like toning down events of the past. And obviously we have the same thing here every day where it's just like, okay, did you see what I just saw? And yet it's being reported or written about this other way. And it's just like a matter of who controls the narrative. The first time he confronts the public, it's a falsehood. You're saying it's a falsehood. And they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains. Alternative facts? And so much of this revenge plot is like, hey, here's this narrative. Why aren't you remembering it? And let me help you get there. Memories tied in, in, in a loose sense to morality, whether you're talking about, because obviously that's relevant in politics, but specifically in the story, it's relevant to whether Odasu feels guilty uh, about, spoiler alert, sleeping with his daughter. You know, in the end, he chooses to forget. And that's, you know, that erases the moral objections that he has to that whole issue. Right, because he does not feel guilty at all about what he did to Ujin. He doesn't even think about it. It takes him so much 
to get to that point. That's the the central mystery of the entire film is why did he put him in prison, even though the mystery should be why did he let him out? But it's like, why did he put him in prison? Oh, well, because of this thing that was a slip of the tongue, you know, like, and we, and we know that when Odesu finally hears the tape of why he was being put in prison, it's because he's got a big mouth and we have all of these things that go on around the mouth in this movie. It's absolutely fantastic. And then basically Wu Jin is handing to him a clue, a major clue, this whole thing of school's out, now it's time for homework. That's the first thing he tells him when he gets out of uh, the prison. And it's like, okay, you should immediately start to think about school, but he's completely oblivious. With his forgetting the incident, Wu Jin says that, you know, you just forgot. It isn't that I erased your memory. But I always wonder if he did erase the memory to make the game more fun for himself that he enjoys laying out the clues and you have other instances towards the end where it's clear that you know that Wu Jin is rewriting history I mean that he's he's telling things that can't possibly be true so you don't know how much of what he's saying in the climax of any of it is actually uh based you know like where where he's rewriting things you know whether it's like the you know your lies created a, a, a fake pregnancy you know or like um even just the memory of when she's falling, like, I have no regrets. Like, that's how he remembers it. You don't know that's really how events transpire because he's not a reliable narrator, but neither is, you know, the hero, you know, Odessu. So it's, I don't know, I, I always wonder if if he's really that self, like, that unconcerned for other people that he could forget something like that dramatic, or if that's just the way that the villain has constructed the story. That thought has occurred to me. There are, there are a couple of things in this movie that will test your willing suspension of disbelief, like, you know, the validity of hypnosis, whether that's really possible, that, that might be one of them. And this, uh, uh sort of selective amnesia is another thing. And it, it bothered me for a while, although in the most, my most recent viewing, it sort of occurred to me that Odasu was also a pretty, uh, heavy alcoholic. So that may have, so it's, it's possible that it, it's, it's conceivable that he did forget most things that happened to him in childhood since he, uh, drank himself to forgetfulness for most of his life before imprisonment. Or it can be somebody like me, where when I meet people from my past and they're just like, oh, the time that you did this, and I'm just like, really? I did that? I have absolutely no memory of that. <laughs> it's such an easy coping mechanism for me to just be able to like push things out. That's one reason why I don't like to ever go back to like class reunions, because it's just like, I think I've wronged all of you people. I don't think I caused anybody's sister to commit suicide, but I have a feeling I've wronged a lot of people. Yeah, I feel like if you're a popular guy in high school like Otisu was, you probably forget. I mean, if you're if you're uh, one of the nerd kids like I was, you probably remember everyone you talked to in high school, but uh, if you're popular, you know, it's too many to remember, I guess. Oh, I was not popular. No! I like that all versions have like just lists and lists and lists of names that he's wronged. Like that, that he never runs out of names. It could be this, could be that. Like it's how many people did he harm? It's like you never know. And like he carries around all those books too of his memoirs, which I, I, I was trying to think like what that reminded me of other than something like Henry Fool or like some indie film. But I'm trying to think what if there was like a literary reference to that part of it, just like him carrying his, his, his story around like that. I love the line of his friend who says, do you remember the name of the husbands of all the women you fucked? You mentioned the idea of the hypnotism, too, as far as, like, did that block it out? And that was one of my questions when I was reading the manga as, as, or manga as well, when 
our main character go to in that one, when he hears a song, he has almost a violent reaction against the song. And then that becomes the key to unlock the memory of what the the wrong in that movie is so strange to me because it has nothing to do with incest. There's no murder. There's no suicide. There's nothing that's basically he took pity upon our villain when that villain was singing this particular song. But I like that they took the idea of this song and then recontextualized it for the movie and have this whole thing of the song that Mido sings and that we actually have that song come up earlier when he's watching the television and when he's talking about how the television can be your friend, can be your lover. And when he says friend, it shows Frankenstein and we get this whole idea of him being a monster. But then when he says lover, it's these K-pop singers on TV and they're singing that song. And it's that same song that Mido will sing to him to let him know that she's ready to have sex. I'm not as familiar with Korean culture to know how much because, uh, you know, Odasu is a man in his 40s, presumably, and Mido is a virgin. And she's, you know, if you if you do the math, she's about 18 years old. Uh, I don't know how, uh, whether whether a Korean audience would have seen that, you know, without, before knowing the twist at all, if they would have seen that as scandalous in any way. I'm not sure if they would have interpreted it the same way as an American or Western or European audience would have interpreted that. Um, I imagine a little bit differently, but... Maybe they would have still thought it was strange that these two people just happened to fall in love. It's definitely less unsettling than in the manga version, though, where she really is made to be like a child in, in like with a crush. It's a lot. And even though he's a younger hero uh, and he's he's locked up for less time, it still feels like like a much creepier age difference than the other films. Well, thank goodness that she's not his daughter. The incest stuff is whole cloth, you know, made up for this movie. And I love it. And I love that. Not that I love incest, but that I love that it becomes this incredible way of getting revenge that we have the incest at the beginning. And then that, then that Wu Jin manufactures incest for Odesu with Mido. It's like the perfect answer. It's that balance that we have to create. And I just love that that becomes you know, it's just like, how twisted is it that that is the vengeance? You know, that that is the way that you get your revenge is by making your main character sleep with his daughter. That is really fucking twisted. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why this movie has such staying power from 2003, other than that it's also just a very compelling story and so well made. But it is just so fucking twisted. The idea that, like, you know, the incest between me and my sibling isn't so strange. And look, everyone would do it if the taboo was removed. Look, here's another example. He's creating the example, but he's using hypnotism to force it. And I don't, I don't know if that helps prove his argument, but I didn't see it coming the first time I watched the movie for sure. Again, it's important to to know that Odasu chooses to stay with it. He only doesn't want to. Uh, he can't accept it as as. Um, more, see, he, he cannot accept it morally, but, you know, as long as he forgets about it, he's, he can't keep going on doing it in the end. So, Wujin does sort of win in, in, in a way, in a twisted sort of way. That was ambiguous, too. And I, I, I don't know if we should talk about the ending now, but just, just as an idea, when she, when the hypnotist says the monster will walk away with your secret and you won't remember anymore, is the secret that they're related or that they slept together? I think it's that that they're related. 
that's how I read it, but it's never spelled out. And I wondered sometimes because they don't imply that they're lovers at the end that she just says that I love you and he smiles. So you could read it that he just removes the sexual component, but retains the, uh, you know, it reunites with his daughter. I think most people probably read it the way that you and I first read it, but, you know, watching it again, I thought, well, they never actually spell that out. No, I, I agree. Yeah, I think I, I've, I've always interpreted it as the the relation uh, part that he forgets, not the sexual. But it is open to inter- to interpretation, and I think that's open to interpretation. And also, whether or not the hypnotism was successful, I think that's also open to interpretation. His smile is ambiguous as fuck at the end, and I I'm always impressed by how you know how expressive his face is. Choi Min Six, the actor's face is. He can just he does that a couple times in the movie. Where he just smiles, and that that smile can mean a, a, a so many different things, and you just can't really read him. What's he feeling at the moment? When he smiles at the painting that says, when you laugh, the world laughs with you. When you cry, you cry alone. And when he smiles and it's just that rictus looking smile on his face. And it's like he forgets how to smile. It's like he forgets how to move in the world. One of the most interesting articles that I read about this really touched upon something, again, going back to can dialectics break bricks, we talked about the uh, fallibility of subtitles and that there are things that are being said on screen that I was not able to pick up as uh, a English-speaking person, not a Korean-speaking person. The idea of when he comes out of his cell that his voice has changed. There are moments where we get subtitles, people saying, you know, you, why do you talk so weird? As a reader, I'm not reading anything different about his, his speech. And then I'm reading people that actually do speak Korean saying, oh yeah, he has no tense to his speech. You know, everything is in the now. And it isn't until Mido says, listen, in the future, when I'm ready to have sex with you, I will sing this song. Suddenly he starts to gain tense again in his, his speech. But until that moment, he has no tense once he comes out. So it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. Interesting too, because again, that plays with this whole idea of time. And the the other thing that I forgot to mention before is that we're playing with time from the very beginning of this film. That we see him standing on top of this roof, holding this guy's tie, and he starts to tell his story, and it immediately takes us into a flashback that lasts for fifteen years, and then he comes back to it pretty early in the running time in the movie, but already we're breaking time. And that's one thing that I appreciate is that, you know, we've got flashbacks like crazy in this. So this is already setting us up to have flashbacks and to, to accept that, but just that he is our first narrator and telling us the story through this strange instance of this guy who's standing on a roof about to jump off because he's guilty because he's been having sex with sexual relationships with his dog. Yeah, he's a character from the previous movie in the trilogy. Uh, uh, from such a nice way to bring it together. Yeah, from Mister Vengeance, and and I I always like the fact that that this the movie starts with a literal uh, cliffhanger. You know, it's a cliffhanger in the story, but it's also literally a guy hanging from the top of the building. Yeah, that's something Park Chan Wook does in all his movies. All his movies are in, in one way or another non-linear and play with time. There's you know uh, scenes moving back and forth, and sometimes it's it's. Uh, it's hard to tell which one came before and which one came after. It's almost for a lot of his movies. It's almost mandatory to watch them ties to, to to watch them more than once just to to be able to put them together and understand how exactly the story goes. 
I always kind of liked how that opening scene, you, you think it's a situation where he's getting vengeance on somebody. And then the second time you see it, you realize he's saving somebody. And the third time you see it, it's the, it's the, you know, the Wu, Wu Jin's memory of it. And you realize that that opening could have been arranged to put Odesu in the same shoes that he went through or his memory of it anyway, so that it would have that resonance with like a tragic event in his own life. Um, I just, yeah, I don't know. It's it, it, interesting rhyming thing because it, that, that opening feels so differently when you're first in it and you think it's the beginning of a reign of vengeance. It has nothing to do with it. I have to say, Bill, I never actually made that connection of Wu Jin and his sister and Odesu and that guy on the top of the roof. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. You know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of foreshadowing of all kinds, uh, in, in this movie. And he references, especially if you watch, uh, all the trilogy of Vengeance back to back, he references the different movies. He uses a lot of the same actors. Uh, he makes visual references. He makes, he makes references to plot elements all throughout the tri- trilogy. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable. And yeah, this movie, it, I love the way that it's shot and that there are just these things that I wouldn't expect. Like I talked about Mido talking about ants before and we get those moments where, you know, the ants breaking through the skin, um, of Odesu when he's in jail and the freak out that he has and the way that his head is moving. And then we get that, um, you know, just, these striking images like the giant ant that's on the subway with Mido. It's like, okay, where's this coming from? Or when the uh, camera pulls out from Odesu's face and it goes through those two chopsticks, which look like almost prison bars. And then you realize that they're chopsticks and that he's eating a wonton. And it's just like, just these really incredible striking things or like even before the hammer fight starts when he's got the hammer raised and there's the dotted line to the, (laughs) to the guy's head, you know, it's like funny, but brilliant at the same time. I didn't go through any of the uh, many audio commentaries that, uh, that he's done for the film. Does he ever talk about, and I don't know if either one of you have would know if he's ever talked about the ants, having any kind of symbolic purpose. Cause I, I was looking into this just as, um, you know, like Dolly, I thought of, and you know, the, the ants in his work are supposed to represent either death or decay, but also sexual desire. And then there's other people that read the ant crawling symbolism as, um, like major problems or grievances or irritations. Like it, like it has like some, like, uh, people have interpreted, like, the crawling of ants, like, in different, like, to express other ideas other than, like, literal ants. I always think of, uh, drug addiction, you know, kind of scenario when I think of, like, ants crawling on, sk- or insects crawling on skin. But, you know, and he's not going through withdrawal. I mean, we established that he maybe has a bit of a drinking problem at the beginning, but I don't think of him as going through any kind of withdrawals. It w- what do you think, uh, the ants, like, where do you think that's coming from? I mean, do you think that that's meant to be read as like a symbolic thing or just, you know, they don't have very good pest control in that place he's staying? Well, I know that she says that lonely people see ants, but yeah, I think there's a lot more to it than just that he's so lonely that he's being infested. But yeah, you're right. I was totally thinking of like William Friedkin's bug when I saw that scene the first time. So yeah, the, the way I've interpreted the ants is obviously like Mido states at one time where, you know, ants are never in solitary. They're always in in group so so you know lonely people see ants because they want to be with other people but it's also uh, in a sense and I, I i don't remember where i've read about this but ants uh, in some literature have symbolized the communist movement sort of worker ants kind of like worker bees in a sense uh, and that 
ties back to the class to the sort of the whole class uh, socioeconomic issue where Odasu is he's a, a worker and and he's been separated from the rest of his community in a sense. He's got basically two projects when he's in jail that he is working on his body and he gets that going and he you know learns all this uh, awesome fight choreography those kind of things. But then his other project is escape, and that he is working so hard to escape, he finds a third chopstick by mistake in one of the uh, food delivery things, and he uses that third chopstick to tunnel his way out and feels the rain, and it's like, okay, now he's just about ready to go, and then Wu Jin manages to steal that from him as well. He's on the verge of being able to escape, and that's the day when they decide, no, we're going to knock you out and release you. What a fruitless project this has been. He's worked probably 10 years on this thing, and he's unable to complete it. The other thing I found interesting was the idea of the gas that they pump into this place, this, uh, what is it, Valium gas, that it, and they even say it's the same thing that the Russians used on the Chechens. And I don't know if you guys remember this, because this was, God, I want to say like 2002, 2001, that operation that the Russians pulled because it was it was a bunch of Chechen separatists who had taken people hostage and they were inside of a theater and the Russians decided we're going to use this gas and get these people out knock out all the terrorists and everybody else and then we'll be able to you know go in there and, and get everybody out it went horribly wrong and like dozens and dozens of people I think it might have been actually over a hundred people ended up dying because that gas didn't work and ended up killing them you mentioned the chopstick. This is this is just a little bit of trivia, but depending on how familiar with with Korean culture, that's one place in Asia where metal chopsticks are common. So I thought that was a, a little bit of nice trivia. You know, if you if you were in China or in Thailand or somewhere else, you you will most likely have a wooden chopsticks, but in Korea, metal chopsticks are um, are used pretty commonly. So I thought that was a nice national appropriation, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I had a friend explained to me all about the chopstick differences and I never realized it because I would go when I was working in China I would go across the street to a place that was a Korean restaurant and I would use metal chopsticks every time and then finally one of my coworkers was with me and he was just like oh yeah well here they use metal over here they use bamboo over here they use less wood and I was just like oh okay that's interesting and I guess a lot of it is because of like the bibimbap or like just the whole idea of like dipping into something that's hot, like almost like a Korean barbecue where you're pulling stuff off of a stove. So you don't want to use a wooden chopstick because it'll start, you know, it'll catch on fire. Touching on the, the, almost like the prison movie kind of trope that it kind of taps into when you think he's going to break his way out. A lot of movie directors use the theme of uh, voyeurism, um, like as a metaphor for uh, movie spectatorship. Vertigo being like, I mean, that's one of the reasons that like Vertigo was such a big influence on many directors and even Obsession being like a, a, a riff on Vertigo. Park uh, Chan-wook uh, was inspired to become a filmmaker because of Vertigo. But like that, the notion of, of voyeurism and, you know, the fact that this whole chain of events kicks off because uh, Daesu gets into trouble uh, peeping. Uh, you know, like he's engaging in voyeurism and, and sees something that he shouldn't. And that kicks off the chain of events that, you know, creates all the, the drama. When Wu Jin is carrying out his revenge uh, on Daesu, like it's 
he's creating a series of of movies that he's watching essentially like he's got this prison movie and then he's got action movies and then he's got a porno movie and he even sits in and watches when they're passed out like he he gets on the set like he is like a in some ways like a film director creating like a, a narrative for this person that he wants to ruin but then when he's run out of stories to tell with him i mean he takes his own life so but it's you know and like you know because there's no there's no more uh scenarios to put him through but i i thought about that this time i mean the fact that it does feel like a prison movie uh you know for good feels like a long time but maybe it's only like 10 minutes of screen time and that's something that you don't get in the manga at all i mean it feels like he's he's out almost right away you get no sense of the passing of time but that's something that all the films really underline there's a lot to be said about the Bollywood version, but I like how they, at one point, they use the metaphor, a play. They're, uh, I don't remember exactly where, but he's saying, I'm writing a play, and this is how the play is going to end. So that kind of ties up to, ties in with what you said of making a movie. So I kind of like that about the Bollywood version. I don't think it's made as explicit in the, in the Korean, in Old Boy, but, uh, Old Boy is all about subtlety. So I guess not. Odesu does see the brother and sister uh, engaging in, in sex through this broken glass, and that we get this kind of uh, spiderweb type uh, thing that comes back, like on the packages that Wu Jin leaves for him. It has almost a similar pattern, and that he is caught, Odesu is caught because the sister has a mirror and the way that she's looking at herself and at her brother with this handheld mirror. And then she eventually turns it at one point and is able to see Odesu's reflection. And this whole idea of reflection that we get throughout so much of this, I mean, Bill, you talked about the final hypnotism scene. And I found it so interesting that when the hypnotist is trying to rid him of his memories and splitting him between the monster and Odesu, that there's a shot of him looking uh, in, I think it's set in Wujin's um, penthouse, and he's looking at the glass, and there's the reflection of him, but then it's he walks away and the reflection stays. So it's like he is the reflected version. He's not even the real version, the actual, like, you know, he's the disembodied version of Odesu. The the embodied version walks away. And that when Wu Jin is talking to him and kind of revealing a lot of his, you know, machinations, that he's doing it all through a reflection, that he is talking to Odesu in a reflected version. And that we get that, great reflection of Odesu's face after he flips through this photo album, again, with recording things. You're talking about making a movie. Well, in this one, it's like a slideshow because it's, you know, or an animation because he's flipping through these pages so fast and watching Mido grow up. And then it's his face being reflected on an empty page at the end. It's just so smart. Yeah. And I think the voyeurism that Bell mentioned he's also he directed inwardly. Uh, you know, if you consider Oda Su split into two people, so the Oda Su, the person and the monster, uh, the you know the majority of the m- of the movie is the monster peeking into Oda Su's life because he doesn't remember. Uh, any of it. And I think the mirrors are sort of partially symbolized or partially, uh, you know, allude to that, to that part of his journey to, to him trying to rediscover himself. And that's, that's what happens that the final piece of the puzzle is, is, I mean, he's, he's remember most of it. He just hasn't remember, you know, or doesn't know about his daughter. He flips through the images and that's, that's the final part that remains to be discovered that also happens to coincide with uh, what Wu Jin plans for him. So I thought, I thought that was very, some very clever symbolism from Park Chan Wook. 
I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, and that's kind of what I'm known for. When Mido is looking for the daughter, because she's, and it's that one, that, that classic noir trope of looking for the person that you actually are. Usually you're investigating someone and it's actually you. Um, but she's looking for this daughter and she goes into this place. And of course, there's all these clocks because clocks are everywhere. Time is super important to this movie, but that the daughter, allegedly moved to Stockholm. And so immediately I'm thinking of the Stockholm syndrome and this whole idea of learning to love your captor. And I'm just like, is that what's going on either between her and Odesu or between Odesu and Wujin? Because it just feels like they're all you know captives of one another. I don't think that's a reach. And I never thought of that. Um, cause I never thought of her as, as being like, I, I thought of him being brought home by her and maybe programmed, you know, both of them pre-programmed by, by Wu Jin to act that way. So I always think of them as both kind of not always working with their own, you know, autonomy in those scenes, but yeah, it, it could definitely play that way as well as the, as far as the Stockholm syndrome element. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's a reach. Uh, it's a reach either. Uh, another one, which might be more of a reach is, um, uh, he's in his first movie, uh, Joint Security Area. He's, the main character is from Stockholm. So that could, that could be also, well, he's a Korean living in Stockholm and that could also be a reference, I suppose. I mean, he's known to do that. I did really want to talk about the music. You know, I talked about the song that is this kind of siren song from Mido, again, going back to Greek mythology, but the use of music and classical music. And I love the soundtrack to this. Looking at the soundtrack, it's just amazing because each track has a name of a movie. It's not just a, you know, hallway fight or this or that. It's like The Big Sleep is one of the track names. And it's just like each track is a movie reference. So it's just like wearing your uh, influences on your sleeve. So I really appreciate that. One time I did go through uh, every scene where a track appears, uh, looked it up at the name of the track and try to see if there's any connection between that specific scene and the movie that the track is named after. But I, don't, I think it's just random. I don't think he went that far as to make that kind of connection. It was, I mean, it was a fun exercise for me, but uh, I'm not sure it, it, it was very fruitful in terms of interpreting this movie. Uh, yeah, but I agree. The soundtrack is is amazing. I, I, I only wish the remakes had such a great sound. I don't care how how bad Spike's Lee version is. If it only he invested in a better composer to, to, to create a decent soundtrack, I, I think I would have liked it more. Some of the Foley work in that movie could have been a little bit better too, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. Well, the Foley work is a lot better in the three-hour cut. I don't know if you knew. Oh, really? They changed the Foley for the short version? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if we're going to jump ahead to, to talk about the, the famous hammer fight scene, but I would just say about the, 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 you know, well, there's a lot to say about that. But one thing, just since we're talking about the music, is that trumpet solo on the soundtrack. Park Chan- Chan-wook had said that, that that scene underlines the meaningless, the, how meaningless the fighting is to Daesu. Like, that was how he took that scene as a director. But when I watch it, I see somebody that is, you know, the embodiment of world-weary cool. Like, I think of the trumpet solo reminding me of spaghetti westerns and, like, giving, like, a mythic kind of heavy-hearted quality. But he's still taking on, like, uh, you know, an army of of bad guys and winning. Like, it's a... uh, like it's it's a moment of cool action, not so much like underlining the meaninglessness of his action, you know. Whereas I think sometimes like the revenge and like sympathy for Mister Vengeance is like it's 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 calling out like how maybe pointless all of this is. Everyone's gonna die in the end, but 
in the set piece in Old Boy, I mean, it does feel kind of almost like an exuberant cinematic moment. And you look at how that scene plays in Spike Lee's remake version. And I know that he complains that that was originally one unbroken shot and like was forced to cut in re-editing it down. That may or may not work better in his original cut. But the music is generic uh, film score music that is like builds in like a very unremarkable way. It doesn't really call attention to itself. It doesn't add that extra kind of melancholy, you know, heroism to it. Um, I, I, you know, that's just one, you know, I mean, none of the music really stands out in, in the, uh, remake of old boy, but I mean, that's, that's one part where the score in the original Korean film, uh, really like it makes the scene a lot more moving as well as like exciting. Yeah, I think the the word generic is a perfect way to describe a lot of things about the Spike Lee uh, remake. Bill, you mentioned spaghetti westerns, and I totally see that. Though I think it's interesting that so when he gets a phone call from uh, Wu Jin when he first gets out, when he's at the sushi restaurant before he, uh, I think it's before he eats the octopus, which is one of the other um, major things that everybody seems to refer to he starts to shout out names you know he's made that list of names and he's just like are you this person are you this person are you this person i thought it was a really interesting twist upon once upon a time in the west when frank is being confronted by harmonica and harmonica won't tell him his name i mean right now we just call him harmonica and that frank is there wondering who he is and then when harmonica will spit out names of people that frank has killed in the past jim cooper Jack Youngblood. More dead men. They were all alive until they met you, Frank. It would normally be the good guy who is there, you know, shout, not shouting out the names, but like saying the names of people that somebody killed. Whereas in this, he's saying the names of people that he's wronged in the past and just like, are you this person that I wronged? Are you that person <laughs> that he's got such a long list of names? That whole movie is just the revenge, you know, harmonica having that horrible thing happen to him when he was a kid, you know, having his own brother standing on his, his shoulders and then having to collapse because he can't stand up anymore and then seeking revenge against that person. I mean, that whole movie is about revenge, but it's, you know, it's such a nice, I think it would be a good companion piece to old boy. Regarding that long fight scene, I, I, I haven't watched the the making of documentary uh, recently, but I did watch it a while ago. And if I remember correctly, that was a to, uh, the decision to make it a, a one uh, a continuous cut was was actually made during filming. It wasn't planned that way. And know that he mentioned originally that he was going to try to copy uh, a Sonny Chiba movie. And then when Tarantino cast Sonny Chiba in Kill Bill... Uh, he was afraid that Tarantino might be doing something similar with Chani, uh, with Sunny Chiba, uh, you know, moves. So he, he refrained from it. I, I don't know if that's, I mean, apocryphal, but that's what he said in the interviews at the time and that he decided, uh, well, why, why do something that's referring to another film? I'm just going to find my other way, another way to do it. It always reminded me of a video game. Um, like it always reminds me of like Double Dragon or one of those games where it's just like that panning shot and you just follow it back and forth unbroken. He's working his way up to like, you know, the boss at the end, you know, like it has that kind of feel, but it doesn't feel like, um, like sometimes when I think of video games in relation to cinema, it usually can be a distraction. It, it takes me out of the movie this just felt like, well, this is actually what a good video game movie could look like because it has the same composition that I would associate with an old Nintendo game, but it's, it has a moving dramatic purpose as well. Yeah. The emotional resonance is there 
because of what just happened a few scenes before. It's not just action for action's sake. It's not a cool take for just because it, the director thought it was cool. Yeah, well, and I thought about something like They Live, which also has a fight scene that goes on for comically long period of time and in a way that it's like on the one hand it's like john carpenter thinking rowdy rowdy piper people want to see him fight but at the same time he's also thinking like it just makes it funny how long they're fighting and just how pointless it is when in that film like you know the struggling lower class are fighting forever among each other not looking at the real enemy in this it's you know got a different purpose but it's like it's it's underlined uh, underlining how long it's going on not to show how indestructible he is even though it ends with a gag with all these bodies falling out the elevator so it doesn't have like the punchline of like yep he's just that badass but for a long time it's can he keep going and does he want to keep going because he doesn't see it does it's not like he's happy to be fighting and he's not scary the way like josh brolin plays that character as psychotic at least the beginning and it's not that either I don't know, you can read it many ways as you're watching it, but I think that's it's a great action scene, but it's also very rich in ways you could interpret it. It's certainly a lot more realistic than than the remakes have been. And, and it's important to note that the the actor, Choi Min Sik, uh in comparison to Josh Brolin, I, I think I've seen him uh in another sort of actionish movie where he plays a boxer, but otherwise I don't think I've seen him do much uh, many physical take on many physical physically demanding demanding roles. So that's, I mean, that's quite, quite a feat. And I think that the fact that he's not a professional mar- martial artist or a professional fighter or anything of that sort makes, makes the realism come out. And, you know, in combination with the, the way the director chose to, to shoot that scene, I think makes, makes the realism stand out a lot more. Well, I like that they all seem very tired and they seem to be getting more tired as the fight goes on. It just really adds that level and that he isn't indestructible, that people can come up and bash him or fucking stab him in the back and it's just like okay yeah this is but to your point i can see the video gameness of this and the whole idea of like the guy who runs the prison is like the mini boss or you get up to like you know you're you're fighting up and up and up until you get to you know donkey kong or whatever and it's like we've got our main villain but then he's got um mr han and you have to defeat mr han before you get to the main villain and it's interesting that the main villain you know, takes that elevator down and that he's basically, you know, comes down to ground level for the once he's dead. Elevators really play a, a big role in this. I've uh, never really thought about that with just all of the different levels of this and this whole idea of Wujin being all the way at the top of that penthouse and that we have, you know, this whole elevator thing with hitting, what is it, seven and eight at the same time and this floor seven and a half that he gets to, or even when he comes down from the top of the whatever he's dumped at uh, in the box or the, the chest that when he uh, is let go from prison. And just the way that he is freaked out being in the elevator in <laughs> just that, that moment. And I love when he steals that woman's sunglasses afterwards because he's so not used to the light and that he's wearing this completely incongruous, you know, set of sunglasses on his face through so much of this and that they just look ridiculous. But yet he carries himself, you know, he does have this coolness as this monster. I don't think the first time I watched it that I noticed that he's stealing that woman's sunglasses. I, I, I know, and like watching it again, I'm like, oh, that's what's happening there because I think my first thought is, is he gonna 
you know, uh, like be overwhelmed by like the fact that he hasn't seen a woman in 15 years, which, you know, comes in later with like his, you know, near assault of, you know, <laughs> his daughter on the toilet. But like the, the fact that when he's leaving the elevator and the police are involved, and I thought, you know, okay, my, my, my first thought is like, maybe he, he pulled something, you know, in the elevator and, you know, that's going to be where the scene goes. But, um, it's the sunglasses, but the fact that he didn't adequately comfort the suicidal man and like his death is the distraction that allows him to get away with these sunglasses is such a funny touch. But the, the sunglasses also when he's in his first fight with the, with the, with the young, you know, street toughs or whatever, you know, the, um, the fact that he takes a drag from the cigarette with the, the suit and the sunglasses, like it's, it's almost art, you know, it, it's, it's cool to the point of like, like overkill, like, like overstatement, like he's that, you know, he, like it's, it, it's, it's putting him at like an iconic, cool action hero to like in such quotation marks that I almost wonder like if it's, if it's meant to be played straight or if it's like, calling out that it's like he like he's that much of a um you know iconic figure in that point because he's you know he's so slick looking um but you know by the end he's you know definitely a lot more bedraggled but like i mean it's almost funny like how takes the drag of a cigarette before getting into like a fight where he beats up everybody like you know hasn't been in a fight in you know he's been locked up for years but uh I don't know. That's something that they don't really touch on in the in the manga either. I mean, like he he can box pretty well, but they don't like make any uh, statement about his like superhuman kind of fighting skills. Yeah, I think the the director's minimalism uh, when he how he jumps shots, I think definitely helps helps portray him slicker. Like in that scene that you just mentioned, he, the, he doesn't need to show the whole fight. He just shows one punch and then cut to the next scene. Or even in the previously previous elevator scene, he doesn't he doesn't need to show what exactly he might have done to that woman or how he took her glasses. He just shows him you know on the corner of the elevator, then just cut to the next scene, walking out with her glasses, and you know you see the woman complaining in the background. Then that all just gets thrown way when the man falls uh into the car and then just cuts to the next scene so i i definitely think the the director's style is is just as cool as the main character i love that moment when he goes and he visits one of his former classmates and she's a hairdresser and when she recognizes him i think she just says like one or two words and then cut and he's suddenly wearing like a, a shower cap like she's doing something to his hair like he's already agreed to do that he has no fear of looking ridiculous you know and and, and that's one of the things that i really appreciate about our main actor is that he is completely fearless that he ate that live octopus and i what i read that he actually ate like multiple live octopuses just to get the the shot correct i mean it's just like with the extremes that he goes to and that it, he just seems to have no fear um as an actor or as a character i love the subtlety of that joke in that scene because he's uh, he's showing her the pamphlet and he's probably wants her to ask a question about the pamphlet or you know something but she thinks that he wants that hairstyle so it just cuts to cuts to the you know him Presumably getting that hairstyle. And that's, if you, and that's something that I didn't notice in the first few times that I watched. His hair is different after that scene. Is, is a lot, uh, slicker and a lot, like kind of pulled back a lot straighter than it is in the previous scenes. He doesn't have that wild look that he usually has. There's something about that beautician scene that I wanted to ask you both as far as there's a close up of the woman scratching her knee that's like its own shot and her legs are crossed. She's scratching her right knee. And when 
the woman, the young woman comes in the door. There's a close-up of her knees, and then her knees take us back into the flashback, and they're much younger knees. So there is a visual, you know, correlation. But is what is he looking at? I mean, because I thought, <laughs> I mean, like, like is is it? Because I was looking, like, is it like something with her skin that's supposed to tell us something? Is there? symbolism i i looked into this like i know that um i don't know where i read this that like um if you if your right knee is itchy it's a uh, happy journey if it's a left knee it's you know bad luck on your journey obviously like scratching the, you know the right knee doesn't mean that his journey is going to go well because it's you know going to get a lot worse so i don't i don't know if there was something symbolized there or if there was some practical reason that the fact that the knees were going to take us into the flashback. I mean, do you have any thought? Cause it's, it's such an unusual shot. And I keep waiting, like, what is, what is he looking for? I didn't interpret it as him looking at anything specific. It's just a, a psychoanalytical f- recollection technique where, you know, certain sounds, certain images and certain smells can remind you of a, a thing you might have forgotten. And I think that just, just knee was triggering a memory in him and eventually triggers the memory of, uh, Wujin's sister. I, I didn't, I didn't read any more into that, although it's certainly possible that Park Chang-wook maybe is using the knee as a symbolism for something more. I, I didn't see anything more in that personally. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I thought maybe like just like how casual she was with him could be something, and I don't know if that's a cultural thing that like could mean something more than what I'm understanding. But I, that's why I ask. Could there be something sexual there? It's not like he's Odesu of the current time is looking for sex, but you know, is that something that might have caught his interest? Having a girl with a, a skirt above her knee as a teenager, I, don't, I have no idea. But it is such an interesting way to get that flashback i mean he was definitely hitting on woojin's sister so who knows yeah the flashback the way it's shot the way he changes to a sepia tone uh is just it's such an interesting and unique way of showing a flashback not just cut to back in time and maybe put a date that no he just he just kind of mixes you know shows shows uh the young odasu in the same room as the older odasu and, and then just kind of fluently switches back to them i just thought i've always i'm, I'm always impressed every time i watch that uh, flashback scene how expertly he's shot it kind of reminds me of a christmas carol with this whole like you know watching your past self with the ghost of christmas past you know and it just feels like he's that observer and i think we get that again with Wu, with Wu Jin, and then we also have Wu Jin switching places with his younger self especially when he's holding on to his sister before she drops and i do like that when we cut to the sister and the first time that we see her she's reading a book about sylvia plath which is just such a nice like hey this girl's going to kill herself yeah, that's a funny gag. I didn't get that the first time I saw it, but the second time I go, oh, that's what they're that's what we're saying. In that scene in the in the hair salon, the girl that comes in with the umbrella, is she the same actress as Woojin's sister? It, like last time I, I, I guess I did I could have checked IMDB for this, but uh, it seemed like the same actress. Did did any of you notice that? I did not. It'd be interesting if if he did use the same actress. I mean she appears only a split second on screen, but still. Yeah, I still don't necessarily buy that Wu Jin that the sister went through a false pregnancy. I so believe that Wu Jin was the one that got her pregnant and I just believe that because he's such a bastard and that he wouldn't want to admit that. Yeah, I mean that's 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 certainly possible. I I'm I'm I also subscribe to that theory. I think she most likely she was really pregnant and he just the way the plot is established in his hand is he's the good guy. He's the guy that was that was wronged 
from Bayoda Sue. So there's, you know, anything that might implicate him or might indicate any wrongdoing on his part is he's erased. He's also erased from his memory. So if he is certain that his, his, uh, uh, sister was not pregnant and that's the end of the story for him. But like Bill said before, he's, he's an unreliable narrator. So we can't necessarily take his word for it. I like that every version of this also has, um, a different situation there as far as like, this is the only version of the story that has the pregnancy like that. I mean, cause I mean, but there's always a sexual shaming aspect of it other than in the, the original manga where it's a, it's a, it's a shaming situation, but it's, it's such a different way about it because it's, it's actually being seen and understood and that fills him with shame, you know, and that, you know, it, which is such a, I don't know how well that would translate for film. It's a very curious motive. But even in the, the two remakes, it's always like some sexual embarrassment is at the heart of it. I agree. I always think that he's lying about the pregnancy and it's just makes like everything he's saying that I, I wonder how much of it is lies. Did she jump or did he push her? <laughs> could even be that. They could probably leave other clues. But we, I mean, with two unreliable narrators seeking revenge, it's like, you know, there's so much you could <laughs> you could mistrust, especially when like, you know, multiple characters are like heavily hypnotized. <laughs> So when, in one of the articles about this movie, the, the, the was talking about, you know, the connection between Old Boy and the, um, Oedipus the King play by Sophocles. So it was making the argument, the author of that, of that article was making the argument that there's a twofold motivation behind Wujin's action. One of them is revenge, but the other is to sort of, uh, uh impart empathy into Oda Su to justify his own incestuous feeling. So, you know, sort of trying to, I mean, we, we did touch about this earlier, uh, but trying to make, uh, uh, you know, Oda Su not judge his incest uh, so much, or you know, his ancestors feeling so much by making him feel exactly the same as he did when he was younger. I don't know what you think about that. That's how I I, I did read read it that it was a case where he um you know was trying to justify his own his own behavior by showing just how easy it would be for other people to follow suit if the if the restrictions or taboos were hidden. That it, you know, sexual attraction is sexual attraction and blood relations or not, it doesn't really enter into it if it's love. And so for him to create a situation where he can test that theory out and he, you know, forces his hand a little bit by hypnotizing the two lovers into the situation. Um, but, you know, it is a case where how much of that is hypnosis and how much of that is just attraction because they don't know that they're related. I mean, you could, you could, you know, when, when he expresses kind of bewilderment that they're already falling in love. I mean, I think he doesn't understand why that's happening quite so effectively, even though we, we know we later learn that he, they're responding to triggers that he's, he's, you know, input into them, but like how, how involved, you know, he was in guiding them to that place um, is open to interpretation, I guess. You're talking about unreliable narrators and another big lie that uh, Wu Jin tells to Odesu is the whole heart thing, because I don't know if that's true or not, because he lies and says, or he says that after my sister died, I was so stressed out that I had a heart attack and I had this artificial heart put in place and here's this button. And if I push this button, it'll turn my heart off. And he gives that remote to Odesu. And then when Odesu is finally ready to turn off Wu Jin's heart, 
he hits the button and it doesn't do anything other than turn on the tape player that plays the sounds of him and his daughter having sex. And it's just like, you motherfucker, like one more thing, you know, and there's Odesu who has cut off his own tongue, has acted like a dog, completely debased himself in order to spare, you know, the knowledge of him being her father. And then it's just that little like knife twist before uh, Wujin gets into the elevator. Is the cherry on top of the revenge cake? Well, it always, it always tr- strikes me like that when he, when you know, Odessu is, is is debasing himself so nakedly that Ujin just can't stop laughing at one point. Like you think he might be moved with some other emotion, but you know, it's it's very clear that he just thinks the entire thing is so funny, and you know, he still ultimately maintains autonomy and takes his own life at the very end. Like he's he's never really lost control up until the end, um, which you know, you know, if you compare that to you know the Bollywood version, uh, Zinda. You know, I mean, I thought it, I mean, that that takes such different d- paths. You know, in terms of like simplifying things, that I was almost expecting. You know, that to end like with the uh, the villain being defeated in a more conventional way. I mean, it it nearly gets there. I mean, at the very end, he has a say in it, and like kind of loosens his own grip to fall of his own choosing. But I mean, which is like you know in a weird way, you know, a parallel to the opening of the korean version but yeah it is it is a um something i wondered if the uh well before spike lee's version came out i wondered if they were going to change that because that's so unlike how hollywood movies tend to resolve their their james bond villain type kind (laughs) of antagonist is to like have them call the shots up into the last their last scene usually you get into a fist fight the bad guy falls off of something onto some rebar so that the good guy hasn't actually killed him you know, his hands have no blood on them. It was just an accident. It is definitely like the, the talking killer kind of scene, you know, big time. But I mean, that's the funny thing about the manga is like, they talk for like forever. I mean, it's just like they just hang out. They go on boat trips together. <laughs> like, it's, you know, <laughs> like it, it's it, it, it's almost like the most extreme version of the talking killer. Bill, you mentioned Obsessed earlier, and we should definitely talk about that because You know, I said, like, oh, what other movie is going to set up this whole intricate revenge plot that has your main character sleeping with his daughter? Well, Obsessed did that, uh, or Obsession, I should say. Sorry. (laughs) The Brian De Palma film from, what was that, 76, 76. was it? Yeah, right around the same time as Carrie. I have to say that was one that I wasn't as familiar with. For whatever reason, I missed that one for a long time and only finally watched it just a few years ago. But then as I'm watching it, I'm just like, luckily I came to it after I came to Old Boy and I was just like, oh, wow, okay, here's another movie that does something similar. And I was so surprised that at least in the first, I think I've read maybe 400 pages out of that 500-page course pack that I put together. I never read anybody comparing the two because I was just like, oh, well, it seems like when you have your very intricate revenge plot that we have John Lithgow orchestrating this whole thing <laughs> that that uh, and then end up having Cliff Robertson sleep with his daughter. It's like, okay, I thought maybe we would uh, at some point draw some parallels between the two, but I guess it's up to uh, this podcast to talk about that a little bit, because um, I do have to say, I really enjoy that movie. And I was, uh, you talked about Vertigo and that there were so many connections. I mean, as soon as the opening music starts, I'm just like, wow, okay, this is Bernard Herrmann. There's no doubt about this. This is the pre-Pino DiNaggio type um, Brian De Palma. This is pure Bernard Herrmann going on here. 
Didn't Hitchcock refuse to watch that movie because he considered it a remake of an, an unlicensed remake of Vertigo? He definitely was a little salty about the De Palma Hitchcock connections <laughs> or comparisons, rather comparisons is what I meant to say. There are definitely a lot of similarities uh, between the more, more in style than in content. The, the actual content, I, I I I had some problems with it. This is the first time that I I've seen the movie. Uh, do they? I don't think they ever consummate their relationship. The the father and daughter. Am I am I remembering that correctly? They consummated the relationship in the original cut, and then the studio was a little nervous about it, so they cut it in a way that it, it's either ambiguous or or. Or, or it's never it's never established that that's what happened. Yeah, I, the cut that I saw it seemed to suggest that it was a dream that he dreamed about it either the night of their wedding and before and even the ending felt also when they meet together at the end of the airport felt um, maybe maybe something that wouldn't have been part of the original cut. I haven't read anything about the original cut, so so I don't really know. But it seemed there there were uh, the, most of the movie is great, but there were these uh, small elements that didn't didn't strike very well with me. There's so much talk about them getting married, which is then to imply that they haven't had sex until they actually get married. And so anything that happens after their marriage, we're supposed to think that they've had sex. So, yeah, it's very like we're not going to talk about this. We're not going to necessarily show this. Um, but, yeah, I can see like the vertigo stuff really comes into play for me. But it's a little bit different. It's not necessarily Cliff Robertson remaking Genevieve Bujold, he sees the similarities between her and his wife that had died. And then the, um, a lot of it is her remaking herself in that image. It, it in that way, it kind of reminds me, I guess the scenes of her at the Cortland house remind me of uh, Rebecca in a way that she's almost trying to become more Rebecca. And rather than James Mason having been a cuckold um, by Rebecca, uh, it's like, you know, if James Mason was just like, yeah, more of that, please go ahead. Listen to everything that Mrs. Danvers tells you. I definitely want to see you in those same underwear, please. Yeah, no, it is, it is, it is different because, yeah, Genevieve Bujol is taking on a more active role, especially when she's going, in, you know, through the house when they moved there. And like, yeah, she, I mean, she's, she's playing up to that fantasy, but it's also a conspiracy. Um, you know, it's just like Vertigo. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's definitely like, I thought I've always found that to be like a, uh, a, a wonderful and, and much underrated De Palma film. I think it tends to get overshadowed by the more, um, explicit r-rated hitchcockian films because it's you know everything else is like things like sisters or dress to kill or but we've talked about body double like things that are a lot more outrageous and so i think even though the incest thing gives it like a certain kind of sting it is a more restrained more classical hitchcockian kind of kind of thing from him maybe the most you know stylistically close to what hitchcock would have done with that same script you know versus something like you know dress to kill which is a lot more gory right and a script by paul schrader we should add as well Yes, um, and one that was uh, they they did not shoot his original ending, and um, I I, I want to say they still have never really buried the hatchet over that, which is strange because it's so long ago. But yeah, the original ending, kind of like the original ending of the script that you uh, provided us for the Spike Lee version, you know, um, ends in the future with the reunion in the future. And uh, you know, when I heard Paul Schrader talk about like how the original there was like a, a third recreation of that 
that moment of truth where what what does he do to save his wife you know like the um the, the, the position where he's he's forced to act like i i thought like you know was this going to be like spaceships like what what kind of future are we talking about paul schrader <laughs> like right you know, right uh, the year is 2120 <laughs> <laughs> exactly i thought like that sound like that would be so jarring if they all of a sudden made it in a science fiction movie in the last it, it didn't seem like it needed it and i i feel like either whether for budgetary or artistic reasons, De Palma never shot that third act. So I, I don't know. I, I don't think it suffers for it, though. And it feels like the ending that we have, you know, with that kind of crazy reunion in the airport feels like a marriage of the very end of the of the future portion. Because, I mean, the uh, the original draft, you can find it online. It's actually um, included in the uh, Arrow edition of um, the Blu-ray for Obsession. It includes a booklet with the original first draft that Schrader wrote when it was under the title Deja Vu. I got to admit, I didn't even think to compare it to Old Boy. And I've seen Obsession, you know, a number of times that when you suggest it, I'm like, oh, you're right. There's a lot in common with it. And I don't know what, maybe just because I associate it so much with, with Hitchcock, and I never think of it, you know, in in the other context. But it, it has a lot more in common with with Old Boy than uh, even some of the remakes or the manga. Yeah, I mean, one thing that Park Chang Wook and Brian De Palma have in common is they're both obsessed with Hitchcock. Uh, Park Chang Wook has based his entire work style to Hitchcock. He does the same exact thing. He, he um, storyboards the entire film to the you know, finest detail of how the film is going to look, and the final film does actually end up looking exactly like what he did on paper and Hitchcock did more or less the same thing. I'm, I'm not as familiar with Brian De Palma's uh, work uh, ethics, but I'm assuming he works in a similar style. Well, and I know, John, that you had read about the uh, neo-noir and just how like South Korean cinema really seemed to embrace neo-noir, though one of the things that I read as well was, can we call this neo-noir if there's no femme fatale? You know, and that that's an interesting take on things, though. You know, I look at something that came out, well, I guess it was about uh, 10 years before this, something like Reservoir Dogs, which I feel is very much a neo-noir, but I would say that our femme fatale in that is Mr. Orange. You know, I think we need to look beyond the femme fatale and look at the hum fatale and say, is Wu Jin the, the hum fatale in this? Or or is it uh, our, our main character himself who is split into two? Is he the, the, his own worst tempter? You know, luckily he's not an, a raging alcoholic. He's not split into two people like that, like the Josh Brolin character. But, um, you know, I definitely see a lot of uh, noir influences on this. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think I, I never thought of that, but I think the interpretation that Odasu is his own home fatale, the monster being the main character and the, the real Odasu, I don't know why I keep saying real. I don't think anyone is more real than the other, but one of them being the home fatale, I think it's a very valid interpretation. But also, you know, if you, if you're one classified as a neo-noir noir, I don't think it can be reduced down to a single element. So even if these Korean neo-noirs don't necessarily have, uh, the femme fatale uh, as a character, I, I don't think that necessarily excludes them from being considered as neo-noir. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. Let me ask you a question. 
Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers, both Android and iOS. What's the phone? Hello? Hello? Hey, tell me why I'm in here. Look at me. No, 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 no. The body of Donna Hawthorne was discovered. The crime suspect... Joseph Doucette, the victim's former husband and father of the surviving child. Your father's been missing for 20 years. If I could somehow bring him here, do you think you could forgive him? I could try. showed up last night. I need your help, Chucky. I haven't seen the guy in like 20 years. Who are you? If you were trying to find your daughter and clear your name, I could help you. If you would like to see your daughter alive again, answer two questions. One, why did I imprison you for 20 years? And two, why did I let you go? I don't have a choice. And whoever you are, I will find you. Ah. 
only run this place, all right? You might want to think about what you're doing here. I've been thinking about it for the last 20 years. All right, we're back and we're talking about Old Boy. Now, I know a lot of people out there have heard us talk a little bit about the Spike Lee version of Old Boy, but before that, pretty much just within a few years of the original Old Boy coming out, there was a Bollywood version of Old Boy. And when I first heard that, I immediately pictured. What are they going to sing about? But this is actually a little bit different than most Bollywood films that I'm used to. There are musical sections, but the music is being more used as a montage device. It's what's playing behind the things that we're seeing on screen. We don't get the all singing, all dancing, you know, octopus dance or something. We don't get the choreographed, um, with flashing colors and, you know, great dance beat for the hammer fight. So this is very different than what you would think if I say Bollywood old boy, but um, I have to say it's a it's an interesting take on it. I can't say that I necessarily will watch this one regularly, but it was interesting to see how they took that story and completely uncredited, I might add, interpreted it for this Indian film. I would have loved if the hammer scene was choreographed with dance and music. That would have been amazing. And I'm I'm really hoping when you when you add the trailer for this episode, you include that uh, moment when the villain is shouting, uh, "She's getting fucked." So good, yeah. right? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. I, that that that, would, that made the movie worth it for me. Yeah, that's better than any moment of the room. But it you know it gets it hits the same note. I kill you, Rohit. Agar tum mujhe maroge, to tumhare meri kamata kaun batayega? What's weird is that it, it actually feels older to me then old boy uh as far as like the style of it feels very late 90s to me and i don't know if that's just how it plays for me but i i went into it like his you know mike you and i had watched a, the bollywood take on body double and so i was thinking like is it going to be like that where it's just like a lot of people like hugging as opposed to having sex <laughs> one thing i it struck me with this one is that like after the opening that entire film is shot with that same chilly blue filter so everything feels like that same kind of like oppressive cold quality, um, which is so, so different from the other two uh, takes on this cinematically, or even the the manga, which is you know got that noir feel. Like this feels, I want to say like Michael Mann or something, but like it do, it definitely feels like a totally different aesthetic. And that one I was prepared for because I yeah I was also expecting something closer to a Bollywood musical. I wasn't sure if that blue, yeah, that struck me as well. If that blue filter was uh, was how the film was, it was just a, a remnant of the DVD copy that I watched. It, but I guess it is, it is that's just how the film was shot. Well, no, the opening doesn't have that. It, it does, it does feel like a motivated decision. Like the color palette changes as the story closes in on him in you know his imprisoned. So it, it does feel like a deliberate stylistic choice. But it is, yeah, it it, it is uh, unrelentingly like that's how it's going to look from this point of story on. Yeah, the only thing I could think was, is this how the world looks to our main character after he's been imprisoned? You know, because they actually, they give him a pair of sunglasses. He doesn't steal some from a, a woman on the street. And I'm like, well, is this 
like now the color has changed for him. This is how the world is, or is just this is how the world has changed over all of these years. What is 14 years, I think, in this one. And so that's now how he appreciates things. But I think I'm in this case, I literally think I'm reading too much into it. I think it is much more of just a stylistic choice. I found it interesting in each one of these remakes, we get a different picture that's on the wall. And I was recently um, talking about uh, Graveyard of Honor and the red circles that appear in Graveyard of Honor, the uh, Fukusaku film. And in this, there's a red circle that's in his room when he's being held captive. And he... um talks about it having a Buddhist meaning to it. And I was just like, okay, is that really true? Or is that just something that Jean-Pierre Melville made up for uh, the Circle Rouge? Because I know he talks about that in the Circle Rouge, but Melville was infamous for making shit up, just like how he made up the opening quote from uh, the Book of Bushido for the, the Samurai. I'm like, I really don't think there is such a thing in Buddhism, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've been able to confirm that he made up the the quote in the Samurai. I uh, I looked into it for the, the, the Red Circle, the Circular Rouge, and I, I I was not able to find something definitely definitive that he did make that up one, but it, it's certainly possible. Yeah, that's the connection that I made uh, that I too made when I saw that uh, uh, that circle in his room, like from Melville. And I was wondering if they were fucking with us in this movie because of the whole idea of. So he's an Indian person who is in Bangkok, and he ends up meeting a fellow Indian person who ends up being a cab driver and takes him around the city. He's she's very much the Mido surrogate in this. And so I was just like, okay, you know, it makes sense then if she's his daughter and it plays exactly like the Korean version, but she's not. She just happens to be a very nice person who inexplicably goes along with him on stuff. I don't think that she's been hypnotized, but she ends up still going along with him on this, you know, kill crazy rampage as he's trying to find the the man who put him in this jail cell for 14 years. Yeah. I was just like, okay, I think they're just trying to mess with me now. They, they think that I've seen this movie or maybe they don't because it is just so freaking similar. Like watching this movie, I'm just like, okay, yeah, now this is going to happen. Now this is going to happen. And, Pretty much, I'd say 90% of the time, it doesn't disappoint. I, you know, wasn't sure how closely they were going to follow it. So I was thinking like, wait, so the cab driver is 14 years old because right, <laughs> like <laughs> she looks mature for her age. Uh, like, when do they pass out the drivers? I mean, I don't know how things are run in Bangkok. Maybe this is all plausible. Like, I, I didn't know where it was going. But <laughs> um, yeah, and, and, and I wasn't sure if that when, when we learned that she's not this is a spoiler, I guess, and I don't know how many people have seen this movie, but it, it, they ultimately don't go with the, the incest theme at all. I wondered if that was... I don't know if there's any kind of like cultural baggage that like frowns upon Indian actors uh, having non-Indian sexual partners. Like, I, I wasn't sure if that was the reason or if it was like, or if the setting was arbitrary, you know, you know, as far as like why... Why did they set it in Bangkok? But I, yeah, I, it, it was... Um, yeah, it, it is a very like... It, I wouldn't like recommend it like to e everyone that's a fan of Old Boy, the Korean film, but it is a fascinating like uh, alternate take on that on that story, and it, it doesn't seem to take anything unique from the manga either. But it just feels like like just heavily derivative of Old Boy without committing to its perverse 
aspects um, in a way that makes it feel like a little bit kind of safe and, um, you know, more conservative, I guess. Yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised by some of the changes they make. Of course, they take out all the incest elements and they take out all the sex and nudity. I'm not sure if it's again if that's how I, I haven't seen enough Bollywood movies to know uh, whether that is a you know a common occurrence in Bollywood or not. Because there's one love scene, but they're fully dressed, or maybe not fully dressed, but they're definitely uh, dressed. Um, but then again, everyone who's who's going to see this movie is probably going to come to it after having seen old boy so in that way it does you know because the twist is a big thing in old boy the element of surprise and this movie this movie's end is does surprise you by the fact that it's different from old boy did feel a little xenophobic as far as setting this in bangkok i think one you know she makes a little remark about oh yeah that guy's gonna rip you off you know come with a fellow indian i'll take care of you but then also the big reveal at the end which is that our um main character's daughter is having her virginity sold off in this weird auction that they're watching online and I'm like, okay, is that why they're setting this in Bangkok? Because they say that something like this could happen there, but it couldn't happen, you know, back in India. Like, is that oh. the weird xenophobia we're getting here? Yeah. I don't know. I think that makes sense. Yeah, I didn't think of that, but you're right. And that auction goes on for a long long time because he has to save her while that's going on and it just seems to go on forever i'd be like okay i I would think it would take maybe like two minutes just put somebody up on the auction block and off you go but they're bidding a long time i was gonna say i'd I'd have to watch it to confirm it but i'm pretty sure it was the same clip on repeat for that scene i think you're right (laughs) both this and spike lee old boy in in a strange way reminded me I don't know if you both know uh, Hardcore, the Paul Schrader film, since we mentioned Paul Schrader earlier, but I was thinking of George C. Scott and like his hunt for the daughter who gets involved in like pornography and, uh, and, and like when he's watching his daughter, you know, put into, um, you know, potentially pornographic movie situation. And even um, in the Spike Lee version, when Josh Brolin is being shown the, the footage of his wife's rape murder and he's like turn it off turn it off like it, it like these like, these things that remind me of like uh of hardcore of all things and i i don't know uh it's just it's probably, it's probably just coincidence but uh, it reminded me of that like that same father-daughter dynamic and you know like that is just something that struck me with watching these uh these remakes but that doesn't ever occur to me with the uh original old boy that's one of the best turn it offs that you could ever do i mean george c scott just my God, I've seen so many people use that in inappropriate ways where it's like George C. Scott watches The Force Awakens or George C. Scott watches, you know, the uh, emoji movie and then it just cuts back to him. Turn it off! <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was waiting for something like that when uh, Odessa is like, you know, like forced to like listen to him, like making love to his daughter, you know, but he, he doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, he can't, he, yeah. he's cut off his tongue. He can't say anything. He probably would have. That's true. That's the downside to cutting off your tongue. A good director would have dubbed him with George C. Scott over, but <laughs> they've already committed to cutting his tongue, so they can change that. Well, that's one thing I love about Zinda is that like he 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 like offers to cut off his tongue, but he doesn't. It's like a very happy ending. I, I don't know if any of you watched uh, interviews with Spike Lee before Old Boy came out, and uh, one thing that always struck me is whenever someone would ask him about the remake, he would always adamantly say it's not a remake it's a reinterpretation which it really isn't it is a remake but uh the indian zinda the 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 bollywood version i could 
call that a reinterpretation because I think it's different enough and it, it changes enough significant plot elements that it could be considered a reinterpretation of the of the old boy story. I totally agree. I think there is nearly enough difference to just be like, okay, yeah, this is how we do it over here. I mean, the removal of the incest stuff, like you said, Bill, we're not going back to the manga, but at least, you know, it's, it's no incest, but it's not the manga. So it's a, a totally like a third thing that is standing on its own. Whereas I think, you know, if you remove the incest from, um, the Spike Lee film, it just collapses completely because it's just leaning so heavily on the 2003 version. So we talked a little bit about how we almost got a version from Steven Spielberg, and the original casting of that was Will Smith. And again, I want to emphasize people should go listen to the uh, I Am Legend uh, slash a Mega Man episode at the projection booth because you get the whole backstory there. But I never knew until doing research for this that we almost got a Justin Lin version of Old Boy and that there's a script that's floating out there by the two writers who worked with Justin Lin on Better Luck Tomorrow that was, I think it was dated 2005, Better Luck Tomorrow was a 2003 movie and it's uh, Ernesto Ferranda and... Fabian Marquez wrote a version of this. I did not have time to read this, but I know you did, John. Can you talk a little bit about it? Oh yeah, it was um, uh, it was a fairly faithful. I think of the all of all the remakes that we've had, it's the it was the most faithful uh, of the of all of them. It was very close to the 2003 movie. Uh, the a few changes is instead of dumplings, uh, they use taquitos. The guy, the main guy, who, whose name is Gus, is in prison for twenty years instead of fifteen years. But otherwise, it's it's more or less the same story, and the ending is different. They don't get together in the end. Uh, they get. I, I think Bill might have mentioned this uh, earlier, briefly, but they do meet in the future. Um, that's. I think that's how it ends. They they separate. The main guy runs off, but eventually decides to come back to come back at an undisclosed future time. Uh, but otherwise, it's it's fairly similar to the two thousand three Korean movie. And you said that there was some sort of a blunder with the blood type, because I remember in the in Old Boy, after he pulls out the guy's teeth, he uh, is very courteous and says, this man's lost a lot of blood, who is an AB donor? And then some of the thugs raise their hand. <laughs> Yeah, so that so that's thing, and I'm I'm not a biologist, but I'm fairly certain that AB is a universal receiver, whereas he was probably meant to. So he should have been looking for an O type blood because that's the ah. universal donor. That's and they uh, somehow they repeat that in the two, 2005 script. They have exactly the same dialogue. The 2005 script they have a lot of. I highlighted a lot of the dialogue because it was almost verbatim copied from the 2003 movie. Uh, so that's how similar it was. Yeah, that was one thing, just as a complete aside, but I was trying to watch that um, Terminator TV show that was out, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and there was this whole thing about blood types and that, and I was watching it and with my wife, who um, is, uh, has a um, background in medical stuff, and as we're watching it, she's just like, well, that doesn't make any sense, and I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, if he's a this and she's a that, then the daughter has to be a this or that, and she's almost like drawing Punnett squares for me, and I'm just like... Okay, well, that's interesting. Um, so I'm like, I even like rewound the scene and rewatched it again. And, and she was just like, yeah, this is impossible. So I was like, okay, well, if you can't even bother to get that right, maybe I shouldn't bother to watch the rest of this series. Harsh, I know, but yeah, yeah. That's I mean, how I someone didn't do their research, they didn't think it's important. Take my wife right out of the movie. Thanks. 
it's like in Star Trek when whenever they would write a script, they would leave blank lines for, and they would just simply write techno babble, and someone would go in and fill, you know, the techno babble. It didn't matter what it was. So we should talk about the 2013 version of Old Boy, which I actually went and saw at the theater. My wife did not go see it with me, um, and I, I think I might have told her just stay home and watch the original. I'm not going to subject you to this because I didn't know how good or bad it was because I've been very honest on this podcast. I am not a big fan of Spike Lee films. Spike Lee always seems to get to like the, and I'm going to try to make a sports analogy and not break my own neck here. He always gets to the 90 yard line and then fumbles. And that feels very much like this movie to me. Like he's kind of getting it, but then he always fucks it up somehow. And this movie just feels like, it feels like they never really got where they were going with this thing. And just some of the decisions that they made were really bad decisions. The Charlotte Copley Adrian character, just a terrible terrible character i don't think that you can get a worse villain in a movie that's what yeah i i think spike lee or maybe even both spike lee and charlotte copley they had uh, it seemed to me they had absolutely no sympathy for the villain in their version he was just purely bad purely antagonistic just you know they they did you know even the 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 scenes where they try to humanize him a little bit just fail uh catastrophically like in the one scene in the end where the the father goes on rampage and kills like the first thing that the son does when the father enters the room he says oh hello dad and starts taking his pants off like what kind of <laughs> that just that's 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 almost as ridiculous as she's getting the she's getting fucked line uh, uh so yeah i don't think spike lee really at least as far as the villain goes i don't think he even he, he understood at all what the character was about I love Spike Lee more often than not. I, I like, uh, and that, that could be a long conversation as to why, but like it, it, with this particular film, I think it is maybe the most anonymous thing he's made as a film director, like at least as far as like uh, narrative films. I, I wouldn't know that Spike Lee made this had it not had his name in the credits. Um, none of the, None of the stylistic flourishes I associate with him as a filmmaker, um, for better or for worse, are present. I mean, he's he's really doing it as a more gun for hire kind of thing. But I think that that just I don't know. It just, it just shows real like no real like investment in the material. It just feels like him trying to show that he can make a solid commercial Hollywood thriller, and it it kind of argues that he cannot. Um, unfortunately, um, I mean, there's interesting things about. I mean, I think that the I think we touched on like how. The way Josh Brolin plays it initially is like a very damaged, dangerous person. I mean, I think that's interesting in that it's not trying to celebrate him as a badass vigilante anti-hero the way that the Korean version kind of makes it out in times. Like this, this feels like someone that is, you know, attacking football players that are just <laughs> trying to like keep him from messing with a girl. Like he's, he's, he's clearly like out of control. Like he nearly threatens his daughter. Like when they first meet, like he's, you know, they, they've, they're, it, it feels in a way like they're like, you know, when they tried to make a Batman movie more realistic or something, they just feels like we're going to make old boy, like we're going to make an edgier old boy, right? We're going to make it like everything is going to be edgier. Like it, there can be like crazy incest. Like now it's going to be the daughter's like, like the dad's going to be doing it with the son. Like it's going to be much wilder than, you know, the Korean version. It feels like that's the wrong, the wrong way to take it. Um, and they can make more progressive, like, well, we'll make the, the, you know, the villain's muscle person a woman. Like, that'll be more progressive. Like, there's like little touches that feel like, you know, them trying to 
update it in a way that is in line with Spike Lee's politics, but it it doesn't really work. Um, and it a lot of it does kind of feel impersonal in a way that, for better or for worse, most Spike Lee films, even the ones that are really bad, feel immensely personal. And I, I feel like this does not have that. The subject matter it just doesn't seem doesn't seem into Spike Lee's purview. I don't think it's his type. That was extremely surprised when I heard before this movie came out that he he got the job. This did seem like a Spike Lee film to me for a few reasons. One is the small appearance of Sinke Lee as the bellhop poster kind of thing, which I think was supposed to be a throwback to Mystery Train. Um, but, you know, relative and then has uh, done a lot of work. I think I know she's got to have a TV show. The other thing was the appearance of Michael Imperioli. I always say that Spike gets his best ideas from Martin Scorsese or his best actors. So Michael Imperioli showing up here was the other thing. The strangest thing for me, you know, one of the reasons why I'm not a big fan of Do the Right Thing is the real anti-Asian thing that Spike has. And this movie seems to play into that. And that was another reason why I was surprised that this was a Spike Lee film. It's like, really, you're making and and by the way we should point out that this is a Spike Lee film not a Spike Lee joint because he he took his joint off of this apparently because of the recut having Spike Lee make something that was based on something Asian just seemed really weird to me because he just always seems to have a real anti-Asian thing going in here. Like the woman on the street who's just like, five dollar, five dollar. I'm like, okay, is she related to the guy who ran the store where Mookie would buy his soda and stuff? This seems weird. And then, yeah, having Palm Clementif, Tief, I can't remember how you pronounce her name, having the Asian assistant to the bad guy, I was just like, oh, okay, so she's the inscrutable Asian woman, and she's playing the exact same role that we're going to see the other inscrutable Asian woman play in a few years in Batman v Superman, where it's just like, okay, I am doing all these things behind the scenes, and I'm Asian, and I'm evil. And it's like, okay, haven't we gotten past that? But apparently not. Do you guys think that the if, if the Spielberg version had happened do you think it would have been a better movie or and if not do you who do you think could have done a good job at at making this at at remaking this i'm not sure that it it's a film that i think needs to be remade is my first my first thought just because there's nothing really about the 2003 film that feels like so out of time that it takes you out of it because of how old the technology is or the fashions like it feels like a very contemporary film for something you know that is yeah, I, I'm not going to do the math because I'm bad at math. But yeah, <laughs> what is it, 17 years ago? The one thing that I I never thought of this comparison, but someone I I, I think it was might have been Jasper Sharp, one of the critics compared uh, Only God Forgives to Old Boy, the um the Nicholas Winding Refn film with uh, Ryan Gosling, and I thought that was actually a very interesting comparison because I hadn't made that connection. I don't know if either of you have seen it, but that's like almost like absurdly stylized take on this kind of material. Yeah, I, I just don't know. I mean, St- Steven Spielberg doing it would probably feel a lot glossier. And I, I just can't see him tackling subject matter that perverse. But I don't know if that they would just change it to something like the original manga or even the Zinda take on it, which, you know, sidesteps like the, 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 the messy sexual component. Yeah, definitely not Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I really can't can't picture that at all. Like, I don't know if he would have, you know, because so many of of Spielberg's characters have, you know, very troubled home relationships. So I guess 
that might have worked a little bit, but it almost would have worked a little bit better with, uh, like we were talking about obsession earlier, you know, the whole, you didn't love me enough, daddy, you didn't pay the kidnappers, you know, that whole thing that might have worked as a better uh, ending than, yeah, let's sleep together. I'm trying to think of like, you know, younger, scrappier type of directors. I mean, it makes sense to me that this was, what was it? Was this the third major feature that uh, Park Chan-wook yes. directed? Yes, technically the fourth, but he has disowned his first movie, so the third. Do you know who I think would handle something with incest really well? I can see Todd Solons doing something like this. I, I would have said uh, Roman Polanski, but it's unfashionable to say anything good about Polanski nowadays. He's still kind of in the safe zone over here, and I've been getting a lot of shit for that. But when you make really good movies in the 60s, I'm going to talk about your really good movies in the 60s and maybe in the 70s as well. So I'm not one of these people who just disowns everything that he made after the incident. So, I mean, we will talk about him here. Yeah, you have to talk about his 70s films. I mean, for God's sakes, Chinatown, another great incest yeah, film. Yeah, that's that's what came to say, mind. Yeah, the- I was, I was, I was, yeah, going to say when you talk about like neo noir and and yeah, femme fatales in the, I mean that is you know Chinatown would have the incest theme. I was thinking about like uh, the fact that femme fatale in that is ultimately not so bad, and that's the twist. Yeah, she's got every reason to be upset. Yeah, there's there's just weird things in the the remake in the Spike Lee remake that I, I think we've talked. Uh, more than enough about it, but yeah, it's just, um, there's actually a really good, and I don't usually go for YouTube reviews or not, and especially the name of this channel is yourmoviesucks.org, and it's like, how awful is that? But he dedicated an hour and 38 minutes talking about the original versus the remake and just how the remake, where it fell apart. And I have to say, it's actually very entertaining and well put together. So it's not just uh, somebody screaming about stuff. And thank goodness it's not somebody screaming about how the uh, the Koreans are taking over since Parasite won the Oscars, you know? I mean, I also thought it was interesting how both in the 2005 Justin Lin script, or the script that was intended for him and the this one they changed the time from 15 years to 20 years presumably to accommodate the relationship between father and daughter because you know i guess it's relating to what i said earlier i guess it's more objectionable for a a grown man to date an 18 year old here so they were more comfortable with making her 23 or 24 something along those lines although woody allen did it so i guess maybe it's not as as bad as (laughs) spike lee thinks now that's the that's the director I want taking this material next. He, I, I would I would like to see a comedic version of Old Boy, you know, as as disturbing, but also with you know a couple of uh, sex jokes thrown in there. It seems like we would get like a film movement going on, and then you would get the uh, not another so and so movie. Like, seems like it'll be the next thing coming up from Friedberg and Seltzer. I really want to thank my co-hosts on this episode, Bill and John. So, Bill, what's been keeping you busy lately, sir? Working on new supporting characters episodes, my podcast. Um, I've got, I think, eight or nine guests confirmed now. So I will start my uh, recordings again on Wednesday. Um, I don't know when this episode will drop, but I might have a new episode out by then, which if that's the case, you can, you can find my show at www.nowplayingnetwork.net. Um, I did a couple of home video supplements that uh, haven't been announced yet. And, um, uh, most recently, I guess the biggest thing I worked on was uh, Amanda Reyes and I co-wrote a book on Al Adamson that comes with their uh, the Severn Films uh, Al Adamson Masterpiece Collection, uh, which is pretty exciting. But um, yeah, that's what we're working on lately. That's very exciting. You should be very proud of yourself. 
And John, what's going on in your world, sir? Except, you know, the usual work and stuff. I write reviews of Asian movies for vcinema.com, so check that out if you're interested. There's always interesting stuff in there. And uh, if you like uh, reviews of short science fiction stories that are published in magazines and journals, also check out sffreviews.com, where I also write reviews there. Uh, and uh, that's about it. How many Fs is that? SFF, so science fiction fantasy sffreviews.com. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.